Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. It is the 17th of March, 1900, in the Orange Free State, South Africa. In the small town of Kruenstad, the surviving Boer leaders meet in a secret conclave that will define the future of the Afrikaner people. After months of bloody conventional warfare, the Boer War is at a tipping point. The resistance of the Boers has been fierce, and their forces have inflicted a huge toll on the British who have sought to secure domination of South Africa by annexing the independent Boer republics of the Transvaal and Orange Free State. A war that the British thought would be a walkover has descended into a series of costly battles that have humiliated their generals and humbled their expensively equipped armies. Using innovative defensive tactics, making the best use of the terrain and deploying the native cunning gleaned from centuries of frontier warfare, the Boers have kept the British at bay with a series of scarcely believable victories. But with the fall of the Orange Free State capital of Bloemfontein just four days earlier, abandoned without a shot fired, and the vital Transvaal cities of Johannesburg and Pretoria soon to follow, the Boer leaders face a fateful choice. Should their increasingly demoralized and ragged troops continue to fight on against overwhelming odds? For Transvaal President Paul Kruger, the living embodiment of Boer resistance whose repeated refusal to cave in to British demands helped to trigger the conflict, there will only ever be one answer. The Boers, God's chosen people, must fight on. Beard flowing, holy book in hand, the prophet of Boer nationalism deploys dusty parables from the land of Israel to back up his claim that the Lord's providence will flow to the Afrikaner people and sustain their resistance against the British. It is a bravura performance to steal the heart. But even the fire and brimstone rhetoric cannot disguise the fact that the aging Kruger the rifle and Bible-toting veteran of the frontier wars against African tribes, is himself 
fading fast. Just two months after Kronstadt, exhausted and depressed, he will slip away into European exile, never to return alive to the land of his forefathers. It is apparent that the Boers require fresh political leadership for an uncompromising phase of resistance. Martinus Thinus Stein is the man to pick up the mantle. Bald-headed and long of beard, President Stein, who has led the Orange Free State since 1896, looks the very stereotype of a Boer leader. But in some ways, he is the opposite. A lawyer trained in the Netherlands and called to the bar in England, Stain belies the backward stereotype of his agricultural republic. In the run-up to the war, he could be relied on to be a moderating influence on the truculent Kruger. But behind the mask of diplomacy, he used the build-up to war to engineer a close military and political alliance with the Transvaal. The fate of the two republics is intimately intertwined. And now, at Kruenstad, Stain's commitment to revolutionary leadership is about to be sealed. Surrender, he argues, will be the final death of Boer dreams of nationhood. He argues passionately that the Boers must fight on in the hope of better days ahead. Notwithstanding the despondency of the burghers at the capture of Bloemfontein, there was no serious word spoken of the making peace at the largest war council, over which I, President, at Kroenstad, it was unanimously decided to carry on the war. But with the best will in the world, the resistance pledges will be worthless without a new military strategy to revitalize a flagging war effort. The simple fact is that the Boer commandos are tired. Until now, regular spectacular victories have sustained morale. But the British can draw on a seemingly inexhaustible supply of troops from at home and around the empire. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and loyal South Africans and Rhodesians. And recent results seem to favor the British. The long sieges of Ladysmith and Kimberley have been raised. Mafeking is next. This is Wars That Shaped the World.
homesick and ground down by the struggle. Some Boer commandos are drifting back to their farms and accepting a British amnesty. It will take a military leader of exceptional vision, daring, and unquestioned authority to reinvigorate them. Step forward, Christian de Vett. For the 46-year-old Commandant General of the Free State Forces, humiliating the British has been something of a lifelong project. As a young field cornet, de Vett took part in the historic 1881 rout of the British at the Battle of Majuba Hill. Called up with his sons at the start of this war without any rank, de Vett has been present at many of the war's key battles, rising to general as an aggressive tactician with a preternatural ability to make the right calls under extraordinary pressure. Now, at Kruenstad, de Vett puts forward a singular vision of what the next phase of the war will look like. It will be a guerrilla struggle in which the Boers will abandon conventional defense in favor of flying columns of exceptional mobility. The urban centers conquered by the British will remain deceptively calm, but the countryside around them will soon be aflame. What appears to be a straightforward British march to victory will turn into a nightmare of attrition. De Vett's brilliantly articulated strategy reinvigorates the delegates at Kronstadt. The Boers will fight on. It is a fateful decision that will open an entirely new phase of the war, leading to astonishing success, and as British reprisals increase, to a bitter tragedy of national proportions. But as the Boer High Command scatter from Kronstadt to their secret bases to prepare for the long struggle, de Vett reflects the confident and defiant mood. There was only one word on every tongue. The Boer War proved to be, in the words of historian Thomas Pakenham, one of the longest, costliest, bloodiest and most humiliating campaigns that Britain fought between the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. In this podcast series, we will explore the causes, the carnage and the contested aftermath of this grand imperial misadventure. It was a war which many predicted would be over in weeks, but which degenerated first into a series of humiliating British military defeats and sieges, and then into a pitiless guerrilla war characterized by farm burnings, disease, and the mass internment of civilians in deadly concentration camps. In the first three episodes, we showed how British imperialists, obsessed with achieving domination of South Africa, helped to precipitate a conflict to seize the mineral-rich Transvaal, an Afrikaner republic that was home to the richest gold mines on the planet and thousands of restive British subjects. And we showed how Britain's hopes of an easy victory turned to dust in the face of spectacular Boer resistance. In episode four, we show how the conventional war gave way to a vicious guerrilla struggle and terrifying British reprisals that will utterly change the face of South Africa in the 20th century. Welcome to the Boer War, Episode 4, Mission Accomplished.
Herbert Kitchener, the third and final commander-in-chief of British forces in South Africa, is furious. The war was meant to be over months ago. At least, that's what his predecessor, Lord Roberts, told an audience in Durban in December 1900 before he left the country. Kitchener can see how he came to that conclusion. Bloemfontein, Johannesburg and Pretoria are in British hands, the latter since June. Transvaal President Paul Kruger is in exile. The gold mines are back in production and the Union flag is flying over the annexed Orange Free State and Transvaal. But the war is not over, not by a long way. From their secret bases deep in the rural Transvaal and Free State, guerrilla armies led by the Boer generals Kurs de la Rey and Christian de Vette are wreaking havoc on British forces. In a stunning early demonstration, De Vett decimated the British water supply at Bloemfontein with a lightning attack at Sanna's Post, shortly after the British conquered the city. Since then, the pattern has become depressingly similar. In dozens of engagements, the Boers pounce on British columns, seize hundreds of prisoners and supplies, and disappear into their lairs. They seem to be able to strike at will, evaporating before the net closes. There have been a few close shaves, but De Vett and De La Rey remain at large. Despite a huge superiority in numbers, perhaps 200,000 British troops compared to 20,000 guerrillas, the chase goes on. But it's not just the Africana republics that are proving hard to pacify. On the 17th of December, just days after Kitchener assumes command, Reports come through of an incursion into the British Cape Colony by 2,000 Boers. Alfred Milner, the British High Commissioner who did so much to precipitate the war, is terrified by the possibility of an uprising in the Africana majority Cape. On the 17th of January 1901, he will finally get his wish to declare martial law in the colony. Kitchener famed for his brutal and bloody destruction of the rebellious Sudanese at the Battle of Omdurman, cannot accept this chaotic state of affairs. The face that will be printed on millions of World War I recruitment posters darkens. Sterner measures will be required to deal with the insolence of these uncivilized Afrikaner savages with a thin white veneer. In fact, despite his premature proclamations of victory, Lord Roberts had already appreciated this. He began the brutal policy of burning Boer farms in an attempt to deny the guerrillas food, pasture and shelter. Kitchener will adopt this scorched-earth policy with unflagging enthusiasm. By February, isolated farm burnings have crystallised into a deliberate, wide-scale policy of collective punishment. In a series of drives, Kitchener is sweeping the country of everything that can sustain an insurgency. Women and children are turfed out of their burning houses, while livestock are slaughtered en masse. By the end of the war, some 30,000 farms will be eradicated in this manner. Within months, tens of thousands of homeless refugees are left exposed and starving in the open country. What should be done with these destitute people driven from their homes? As early as September 1900, 
Surrendered Boers and their families have been placed in so-called protection camps in Pretoria and Bloemfontein. According to the authorities, such camps ensure their safety from being re-enlisted. But thousands more refugees made homeless by the scorched earth policies are now herded in, where they soon begin to outnumber existing internees, necessitating a rapid expansion in the number and scale of the camps. Early on, Kitchener issues a telling memorandum to officers. Women and children sent to the camps are to be divided into two categories. Families of surrendered and neutral Boer commandos, so-called hands-uppers, and those whose relatives are still fighting, known as undesirables. Preference is to be given to the former category in every sense. Food, accommodation, medical care. The camps are therefore not only a means to house the increasing number of refugees, but of attempting to secure the surrender of resisting Boers by tying their fight directly to the treatment meted out to their families in the camps. In a rare letter to Boer General Louis Boerter in April 1901, Kitchener acknowledges the rationale behind the system and the cruelty inherent in the policy. Owing to the irregular manner in which you have conducted and continue to conduct hostilities by forcing peaceful and unwilling inhabitants to join your commander, is I have no other course open to me, and I'm forced to take the very unpleasant and repugnant steps of bringing in the women and children. And it is not only white Boers who are being herded into camps. Tens of thousands of black Africans, including farm workers and servants, are separated into squalid African camps equally unprepared for their arrival. As more and more destitute refugees stream to these woefully mismanaged camps, a humanitarian disaster of unimagined proportions is unfolding. It will take a woman of extraordinary character from a quiet corner of England to bring this suffering to the eyes of the world. Emily Hobhouse is a 41-year-old spinster from a sleepy Cornish village. The daughter of a Bodmin archdeacon, Hobhouse's early life exposes the tensions between her privileged class position and the strictures that apply to all Victorian women. Just 20 when her mother died, the precociously intelligent Emily spent the next 14 years looking after her ailing father, serving his every need while putting up with his disagreeable sermons. Despite access to a network of liberally-minded family members and friends, it is a lonely and frustrating time of limited horizons and thwarted ambitions. When he finally dies in 1895, Emily inherits £5,300, a sum that gives her the independence she has long craved. She leaves the village never to return. Her first step is an unlikely passage along the Cornish miners' route to the United States. In Virginia, she throws herself into community life, establishing a choir, Sunday school, 
library and recreation hall and campaigning for temperance. But Emily becomes engaged to an inveterate bankrupt who helps to fritter away her inheritance on a hopeless Mexican farm which she never visits. When it is clear that the marriage won't happen, she returns to England. In London, where she settles, distant rumbles of the South African crisis are beginning to be felt. Keen for a fresh cause to distract from the disappointments of America, Emily re-establishes contact with the liberal networks of her youth. She enthusiastically throws herself into the work of the South African Conciliation Committee, a campaign group calling for a peaceful settlement to the war. As honorary secretary of the women's branch, she organises large-scale protests at a steep personal price. There followed a storm of abuse from relatives and acquaintances, some of whom even attacked me in the press. I lost the majority of the friends of my girlhood, and it was a great loss, she writes. But as the war progresses, and Emily hears more about the scorched earth policies being pursued against Boer civilians, she has an epiphany. The constantly renewed picture of women and children homeless, desperate and distressed formed and fixed itself in my mind and never left me. It became my abiding thought. The thought deepened to torture and by a kind of second sight, I saw myself amongst the sufferers bearing relief. She helps to found the South African Women and Children Distress Fund, a non-political, philanthropic organisation to support British and Boer women and children affected by the war. On the 7th of December 1900, just as Kitchener takes the reins as Commander-in-Chief in South Africa and prepares to prosecute the war ever more pitilessly, Emily sets sail for the Cape Colony. In the shadow of Table Mountain, she hears terrifying tales from Boer refugees about the mountain crisis in the interior. She demands a meeting with Alfred Milner. He agrees to allow Emily to visit the camps alongside a female Afrikaner companion, subject to Kitchener's approval, and even appears to acknowledge that the Scorched Earth campaign is a mistake. But Emily's assessment of the war's architect is nothing short of withering. Everyone says he has no heart, but I think I hit upon the atrophied remains of one. She writes. In early January, she receives confirmation that she can travel north to Bloemfontein, alone. It will be the start of an epic odyssey. Within days of her arrival, she is faced by scenes that will change her life forever. Three kilometres from the centre of Bloemfontein, on a treeless slope, lies a camp populated by around 2,000 women and 900 children. Regimented lines of white tents drift on into the horizon. Boer families sleep in the bare tents, lacking the most basic necessities. There are no wood or coals to boil drinking water or cook food. Water is limited to just two buckets for eight people, to be used for drinking, washing and cooking, necessitating regular trips to the filthy, disease-ridden Modder River. The food rations are insufficient for all, but particularly those whose men are still out fighting the British, who are denied meat. Diseases including typhoid, measles, whooping cough, diarrhoea, diphtheria, pneumonia and scarlet fever are tearing through the camp at a startling rate. There is no soap for washing, no candles for lighting, and most shockingly, no mortuary tent to give dignity to the dead. 
Their fly-blown bodies are simply left among the living until they are buried. Children are left unschooled. Slop buckets overflow, their stench wafting among the tents. Emily sits patiently among the destitute, listening for hours to their stories of farm burnings and deportations in squalid trains and wagons. When she protests to the camp authorities, she is astonished by the callous indifference. Crass male ignorance, stupidity, helplessness, and muddling. I rub as much salt into the sore places of their mind as I possibly can. It is clear that Kitchener and his negligent staff have made no realistic provision whatsoever for the influx of tens of thousands of women and children. Kitchener himself brushes aside the complaint. Allowance is sufficient and families in camps are satisfied and comfortable. Everywhere Emily turns, she sees the human cost of this industrial-scale negligence. She watches as a baby gasps its last breaths on its mother's knee. She sees children reduced to skeletons, including the dying seven-year-old Lizzie Van Zyl, daughter of a so-called undesirable, whose emaciated frame is caught in shocking photographs. The official response is, predictably, one of anger at Hobhouse for daring to expose the cruelty. She is painted as a pro-Boer fanatic by Major General George Prettyman. But Emily refuses to keep quiet. She visits other camps across the region, finding conditions that are sometimes slightly better, often worse. By the time she returns to Bloemfontein, the death rates at the camp are rising. Up to 30 a day are dying. Emily believes that the overall death rate in the camp is between 200 and 390 for every thousand people. There are so many bodies that the funeral processions avoid the town. Despite the mounting medical crisis, healthcare provision is almost non-existent, with only a handful of doctors across the network of camps and a tiny allocation of nurses. Emily also hears about desperate conditions in the camps for Africans. She tries in vain to organise visitors to confirm the reports, but in white South Africa, even the more liberal-minded are simply not interested. She is clear that all must be cared for regardless of race. Returning to the Cape for relief supplies, she is profoundly shocked by the scenes of desperation along the train line, where refugees have been abandoned without assistance some for weeks at a time. The camp at Bloemfontein has doubled in size in just over a month that she has been away. Wretched conditions at Springfontein camp are worsening by the day as the inmates increase from 500 to 3,000. The death rate across all of the camps is mounting furiously. Emily faces a stark choice. She can stay at the camps, doing the little that she can to stay the tide of death, or she can return to England to shake the conscience of the nation in a bid to end the inhumanity of the camps. It is endless and hopeless. There are moments I feel it would be wisest to stop trying and hasten home to state plain facts and beg that a stop may be put to it all. It is this that she decides she must do.
Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A war which started on the distant colonial frontier is beginning to have an impact on the home front. In October 1900, the government takes advantage of the end of conventional hostilities by calling a snap election. Despite all the disasters of the war, the shame of Black Week, the astonishing unforeseen cost in lives and men, Colonial Secretary Joseph Chamberlain spies an opportunity to bolster the majority of the Conservative and Liberal Unionist coalition. Chamberlain uses every opportunity to paint his Liberal Party opponents as pro-Boers, dedicated to throwing away the gains of a precious victory. Every seat lost to the government is a seat gained by the Boers. He tells rapt audiences. We have come practically to the end of the war. There is nothing going on now but a guerrilla business, which is encouraged by these men. I was going to say these traitors, but I will say instead these misguided individuals. The cynical tactics deployed during the so-called khaki election work delivering a solid victory for the Marquess of Salisbury, the ageing Prime Minister who has allowed Chamberlain to virtually act as Prime Minister of the war effort. But several months later, it is apparent that the war is not over. Furthermore, Milner and Kitchener, the men on the ground, are woefully divided over how to end it. Kitchener, notwithstanding his brutal scorched-earth tactics, is willing to compromise with the Boers for an immediate end to hostilities. Milner, desperate to reshape post-war South Africa in his own image, will accept nothing short of unconditional surrender. Against this tense and uncertain backdrop, Emily Hobhouse returns to London with her shocking insights into the camp system. The reaction is far from positive. Speech venues are cancelled without explanation. The national press writes scathingly of her quixotic crusade. And yet, gradually, perceptibly, her influence is felt. She meets government and opposition leaders, including Henry Campbell Bannerman, leader of the Liberal Party. Shocked by her compelling personal testimony, he whispers again and again, Methods of barbarism. When he uses the phrase on the same day at a party dinner in Holborn, it quickly gets lodged in the national consciousness. 
on the 18th of June, four days after the speech. Hobhouse releases a 41-page report of her findings and embarks on an epic speaking tour of 26 public meetings in four weeks. The political fallout continues. Liberal David Lloyd George accuses the army of a policy of extermination through neglect. It is the result of deliberate and settled policy. They started clearing the country about six months ago and it is disgraceful that five or six months after that children should be dying at the rate of hundreds per month. When children are being treated in this way and dying, we are simply ranging the deepest passions of the human heart against British rule in Africa. Yet despite the outcry, the camps continue to swell. By August, there are 93,940 whites and 24,457 blacks in camps, according to official figures. And fatalities are fast rising. In May, there are 505 deaths. In June, 782. And in July, a terrifying spike to 1,675. Slowly but surely, Hobhouse's lone voice is amplified. The government is shamed into appointing Millicent Fawcett, head of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, to lead an all-women's commission to investigate the camps. As women thought to be sympathetic to the government, they are not expected to deliver a scathing report. Hobhouse decides to return to South Africa, even though she will be barred from revisiting the camps. In the months she has been away, over 3,000 children have died in the camps. Reaching Cape Town on the 24th of October, she is alarmed to find soldiers entering the ship. They are looking for her. Furious with her campaign, the military authorities have banned Hobhouse from South Africa. Imprisoned aboard her arrival ship for days, she is tied down with a shawl, strapped to a stretcher and hauled to a waiting carriage. Driven to the next ship, she is carried, thrashing furiously all the way, to her cabin when she refuses to walk. Forced aboard for an exhausting 24-day return journey, she fires off a bitter missive to the soldier and politician who together have unleashed hell on the Boer people. To Kitchener, your brutality has triumphed over my weakness and sickness. You have forgotten so to be a patriot as now to forget you are a gentleman. I feel ashamed to own you as a fellow countryman. But by the time the ship disgorges her back on the British mainland, even establishment opinion is waking up to the truth of Hobhouse's revelations. In October, the annual death rate for all white inmates in the camps is as high as 34.4%. Joseph Chamberlain, who until now has refused to criticise the army publicly and privately dismissed Hobhouse as a hysterical spinster, demands improvements from Milner. In December, the unexpectedly critical Fawcett Commission report only confirms the litany of disaster and neglect laid out by Hobhouse. The report highlights the grossly culpable neglect of staff at some camps and the preventable nature of the spread of diseases. 
The report highlights the grossly culpable neglect of staff at some camps and the preventable nature of the spread of diseases. There is barely language too strong to express our opinion of the sending of a mass of disease to a healthy camp. They report. But the commission did not visit the African camps. Henry Fox Bourne, secretary of the Aborigines Protection Society, estimates that by November, there are 43,595 Africans in free state camps and 39,323 in the Transvaal, five-sixths of whom are women and children. He believes the death rate is as high as 363 per 1,000 in the 64 black tent camps. As in the white camps, nursing care is woefully deficient, food is inadequate, and infectious diseases are rife. But the reality of the white camps alone is enough for government action. Belatedly, the camps are transferred from military to civilian rule. Over the next few months, following the Fawcett Report recommendations, the death rate subsides almost as quickly as it rose. But the damage has been done. While the true figures may never be known, it is thought that 28,000 whites and 20,000 blacks have died in the camps. Always perceptive, Hobhouse instantly recognises the long-term effect this will have on the psyche of the Africana people. The cruelty of the camps will resonate far beyond South Africa. They will gain a name that will have a terrifying resonance in multiple contexts throughout the 20th century. Concentration camps. With government pressure mounting over the disgraceful conditions in the camps and an urgent need to economise as the costly war rumbles on, Kitchener gradually adapts his tactics from collective punishment and scorched earth to scour and sweep. The centrepiece of this system will be an immense network of tiny fortifications known as blockhouses, connected by thousands of miles of barbed wire. By May 1902, over 8,000 blockhouses will cover 3,700 miles, guarded by 15,000 white troops and 16,000 black scouts. This network will both defend key areas and keep the Boer guerrillas caged into limited zones of influence. Kitchener intends to systematically work his way out of the urban areas, clearing the countryside of guerrillas while allowing a rapid return to civilian life. Once again... The British are slowly learning from past failures. Some of the most successful Boer tactics are turned against the guerrillas. Columns of British mounted infantry harry them across the country, while night marches and dawn raids mean that they must always be on their guard. Kitchener does away with any remaining illusions that this conflict is a white man's war. By enlisting tens of thousands of armed Africans, many of whom will man the blockhouse lines and engage in scouting, and offensive operations against the Boers. For the Boers, the widespread arming of their African enemies is a nightmare vision, a permanent threat to their dreams of a fixed and eternal racial hierarchy. 
Boer commandos increase their bloody reprisals against Africans suspected of collaborating with the British, including summary executions of captured combatants and massacres of civilians. They look upon Africans as dogs, and the killing of them is hardly a crime. One alarmed onlooker writes, The partial success of British tactics, the blockhouse lines, the arming of Africans, much improved intelligence and mobility, and the exhausting war-weariness that follows the scorched-earth tactics and the horror of the camps, are having a telling psychological impact on the remaining guerrillas. Out on campaign in the Free State, Jan Smuts, still only 28 years old, captures the existential dread of a people who have seen far too much suffering. Dams everywhere full of rotting animals. Water undrinkable. Felt covered with slaughtered herds of sheep and goats, cattle and horses. A horror passes description. Surely such outrages on man and nature will lead to certain doom. In this all-enveloping malaise will goad the Boers into a desperate last gambit, a final invasion of the colonies in late 1901. The centrepiece will be Smut's last attempt to spark a much-dreamed-of Africana rising in the Cape. But it is clear that the game is almost up. The Boer invasion of Natal fizzles out with a suicidal attack on a British fort. In the vast spaces of the Cape Colony, Smuts and his guerrillas bravely march on, enduring near starvation, dressed in rags and exposed to punishing weather. But even though they register some notable victories, hope is running short, even amid this ragged band of determined outlaws. I have hardly any hope of seeing you again in this life. Smuts writes to his brother. Despite the Boer's heroism and sacrifice, the sheer will to fight on, it is clear that the Cape Africanas see them as a lost cause. Unwilling to risk their homes and livelihoods against Kitchener's steamroller, a minority are even joining the British irregular forces. Meanwhile, the British authorities have already begun reconstruction efforts in the smashed ex-republics, and British settlers have already started to flock back to Johannesburg. South Africa is moving on from the guerrillas. The costs have been enormous, but after a year as commander-in-chief in South Africa, Kitchener's brutal, sustained beating has finally forced the Boers to the canvas. On the 9th of April, 1902, the Boer leadership meet at Klerksdorf in the Transvaal. The defiance of Kronstadt has long since dissipated. A downbeat Free State President Martina Steyn and acting Transvaal President Schalk Berger meet with the Boer generals Louis Borta, Jan Smuts, Christian de Vett and Kurs de la Rey, the national heroes who have done so much to keep the fires of resistance raging. On the 12th of April, a 10-man Boer delegation visits Kitchener in Pretoria with a seven-point peace plan. The plan is not acceptable to the British. It doesn't even acknowledge the annexation of the republics. But it is a basis for further talks. 
For months, Kitchener has been desperate for a peace to end the war. Yet war architect Alfred Milner, who has long demanded that there should be no compromise in South Africa, stands in the way. A year earlier, it was Milner that scuttled the possibility of a peace deal by refusing to accept an amnesty for Afrikaner rebels within the British colonies. Now Milner, whose terms for peace even Kitchener believes vindictive, will again attempt to exert his malign influence. Yet things have changed since Milner last made the running. The government has spent over £210 million, some £25 billion today, on the war effort. But there will be no more blank cheques. The cabinet, and especially the chancellor, want a speedy end to this war. A self-pitying Milner, looking increasingly sick and grey as peace nears, ruse his efforts to keep an empire for people dead set on chucking it away. The amnesty for colonial rebels that Milner so successfully barred a year ago is waved through. But there are other sticking points. The Boers call for war compensation for the widespread eradication of homes and farms. Three million pounds is agreed. It will later rise to tens of millions. But in the form of loans rather than a gift. Kitchener wins Smuts over by assuring him that, in time, a Liberal government in the UK will offer the Boer Republic's self-government. But here, the thorny issue of rights for Africans rears its head. Since the beginning of the war, Joseph Chamberlain has been adamant that the limited rights that Africans enjoy in the Cape Colony, including partial enfranchisement, should be extended to the annexed Boer Republics. But any move towards increased rights for Africans is a concession that the Boers simply will not accept. In the end, the British fudge the issue, agreeing that increased rights for Africans will only be discussed after the colonies are granted self-governing status. Of course, all present know that the self-governing white colonies, whether led by Boer or British settlers, will never vote to enfranchise Africans. Even as these clauses are being hammered out, there are divisions in the Boer ranks. The pragmatic Delaray argues that the bitter end has come. He says that a joint decision for peace will keep the Boer people united against the enormous political and economic power of the British settlers. Christian de Vett, perhaps the most effective Boer general of the conflict, is more hardline, believing that the Free State Boers can fight on. The final end of his famed resistance comes at great personal cost. I've often been present at the deathbed and at the burial of those who have been nearest to my heart. Father, mother, brother and friend. But the grief I felt on those occasions was not to be compared with what I now underwent on the burial of my nation. The British give the Boers three days to sign the deal. Sixty Boer delegates meet south of Johannesburg to debate the terms of the treaty. Fifty-four delegates vote yes, while just six vote no. The Boer leaders return to Melrose House in Pretoria and sign the deal with Kitchener. It takes the architect of the concentration camp to console the Boers. We are good friends now, Kitchener says. The Boer War is over.
For the British, the outcome of the Boer War is almost the definition of a Pyrrhic victory. Despite the immense cost in men, at least 22,000 British troops died, mostly from disease. Within decades, they have surrendered almost all their hard-won gains without a fight. As predicted by Kitchener, who will invest some of his £50,000 reward by the British Parliament in South African gold shares, self-government is granted to the ex-Boer republics by a British Liberal government as early as 1906. By then, there has not been nearly enough British settlement to realise Alfred Milner's dream of changing the demographics of white South Africa in Britain's favour. Milner, who has done so much to tear up the fabric of the country, will leave in 1905 in a row over Chinese immigration. He will return to visit South Africa in 1924. Bitten by a tsetse fly, he will catch the sleeping sickness that kills him. Meanwhile, the Boers will rapidly win back their influence in politics. Boer-dominated governments soon win power in the old republics, and their leaders are instrumental in the forging of the Union of South Africa in 1910, when the Cape Colony, Natal, the Orange River Colony and the Transvaal unite as one nation under the British flag. With British voters outnumbered by the Boers in the Union, and many sympathetic to the hardline racial politics of the Boers, it is not long until the Afrikaners re-establish a stranglehold over white politics across the entire country, even while the British retain their influence over industry and commerce. An Afrikaner cultural renaissance follows. Collective memories of the Scorched Earth campaign and the hideous death toll of the camps prompt a movement to spread the Afrikaans' language and literature. Separatist ideas quickly re-enter circulation. Among the pantheon of Boer heroes to emerge from the war, the Afrikaners will venerate at least one Briton, Emily Hobhouse. Emily Hobhouse is very famous in the Free State. In fact, there's a time... Whose ashes will be interred at the foot of the National Women's Monument in Bloemfontein upon her death in 1926. While the Union stays in the Empire long enough to contribute to two world wars, the direction of travel is obvious. In 1948, the Afrikaner-dominated National Party, fierce advocates of a new system of racial persecution known as apartheid, take power. In October 1960, white South Africa votes to become a republic, withdraws from the Commonwealth and severs its last ties with Britain. Just 60 years earlier, Britain fought its bloodiest, costliest conflict since 1815 to force the two Boer republics into the empire. In 1960, the entirety of South Africa passes into Afrikaner hands with barely a whimper. The wildest dreams of Paul Kruger, who died in 1904 in exile in Switzerland, have been achieved. But despite giving to the Boers in peace what they won in war, it is not the British who suffer. As predicted, the granting of self-government, first to the colonies and then to the Union, 
sees the issue of African rights permanently shelved. Indeed, under the Union, the exclusion of Africans from political life is even extended to the Cape Colony, where Africans lose all their previously held rights. The tens of thousands of black Africans who fought and died on both sides in the war will receive no recognition of their efforts, and the survivors will see no improvement in their rights. The African civilians who perished of disease and neglect in the camps will be all but forgotten. Gandhi's Indians, who hoped to use their support for the British war effort to agitate for greater rights, fare little better. Through the 20th century, they too will be considered second-class citizens in South Africa's cruel racial hierarchy. And often we get people living in areas which, uh, according to the Group Areas Act, they shouldn't be living. The While the Afrikaners will hold the upper hand, the British settlers and their descendants will live comfortable lives of economic and social privilege in white South Africa. To shift away to the homeland areas where they can't find work, or simply to become squatters in places like... The cost of Africana supremacy, therefore, is borne by the vast majority of non-white South Africans. The millions of black Africans, Indians, and colored people who are systematically excluded from commerce, politics, and eventually almost every sphere of white South Africa. The reassertion of Africana national identity, underpinned by a siege mentality forged in the crucible of the Boer War and bolstered by a religious conviction that the Afrikaners will never again surrender power, is channeled into the industrial-scale persecution of non-whites under the apartheid system. Banished into poverty-stricken reserves, their every movement controlled by a system of surveillance excluded from all but menial work. It is the Africans, rather than the British, who ultimately face the vindictive wrath of the Boers. Next, on wars that shaped the world. The yells of these wild horsemen, the Cossacks of the Don. The British soldier, however, and they laughed at their yells. The morning of 16th of August was our last hope. We began to say farewell to Sevastopol. Sevastopol is not Moscow. The Crimea is not Russia. Two years after the burning of Moscow, our victorious troops were in Paris. The future of Crimea was determined by the people. President Zelensky today addressed an emergency session of the European Parliament. This series featured Conrad Reed, Tim Skinner, and Thomas Mitchells. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by David Thomas. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pastor.
Holy Smokes.